the evening sanctuary. As Mark said, my name is Brett Corden. I'm on staff here with our student ministry, and it is so much fun for me to get to be here with all y'all tonight. Um, real quick, just as I get started, I'm going to put on my student ministry hat just for a second, because if a student minister has a mic, he's going to do that. Um, and just want to say that, like I said, I have the privilege of working with students, and our hope here at Menlo Church is that every single student knows that they have a place to belong and that they have adults in their lives who get to walk with them um, throughout their high school and their teenage years. And in the six years that I've been here, the largest number of adults that have been part of our ministry have come from this community. And so I just want to say thank you guys so much for that. Like, we could not do student ministry if it weren't for sanctuary. And so thank you guys. I also love that uh, this is the time of year where our students are graduating and they're coming to college and coming to sanctuary. And I get to sit next to my boy Kieran Ward right here who just graduated. And there are also so many of our other students in the back and just... Thank you guys for welcoming them and um, bringing them here. Because, again, our hope is that students learn about life with Jesus in high school, and then it leads them into a life of following Jesus um, after graduation and beyond. And you guys have been huge for making that happen. So thank you. Um, and then on a personal note, Sanctuary has played a huge role in my own life. Like I said, I moved here six years ago. And when I moved here, um, Sanctuary was the first community that I connected to, like found a life group, found some friends here, found my roommate, eventually found my fiance here. And so, you know, that's some good stuff. Come to Sanctuary, you'll get married. That's how it works. So um, today we are kicking off a brand new series called Bro Broken Pulpit, where we're looking at all the ways that the church, or well, some of the ways, we couldn't really look at all of them, some of the ways that the church has gotten it wrong throughout history. And our hope with a series like this is that we learn about this stuff so that we can figure out how we as a sanctuary community can move forward and be a community that represents Jesus to the world. And as we get started, uh, I want to just say one thing that I think is important for us to know with this series, and that is this. Oftentimes when we think about all the ways that Christians have gotten it wrong, it can be easy for us as the church to look at them and say, we are not like them. Distance ourselves from them. And while, yes, that may be true, this series isn't about them. This series is about us. And this series is about a sanctuary community. Because for us to move forward and be a community that represents Jesus to the world, we need to own our own imperfections in order to figure out how do we grow, how do we change, and how do we move forward. And so tonight, what, we talk, what we're going to talk about, I want you to be thinking about what is this actually meaning for me? Not for that person that I know who calls himself a Christian, but what is Jesus actually saying to me and for us here in sanctuary? So today's topic is one that I think has perhaps been the most damaging or the most divisive topics in church history. And it is simply this, that Christians always feel like they have the need to tell people who is right and who is wrong. This is a question or this is something that has divided up congregations. This is something that has split up families. It's ruined friendships. It's alienated peoples from their peers. And honestly, this is one of the reasons why like, I always have a knot in my stomach anytime somebody asks me what I do for a job. Because I worry about what's going to happen if I say that I work at a church. Because typically it is because they've had some bad interaction with somebody either condemning them or something that has led them to have this shape, this warped view of who Christians are. And so as I was thinking about what to share with you today, 
I was thinking about what is it that causes this problem, and it kind of hit me. I think people struggle with um, what's wrong with right and wrong because people don't actually know what's right or what's wrong. So I figured I will come today with my list of everything that is right and wrong, and I'm just going to answer everything for you right here, right now. So hope you guys are ready. First one, Snapchatting in church. Wrong. However, Snapchatting in church while using a Bible verse. That's right. You're allowed to do that. Okay. Um, Cheering for the Wisconsin Badgers. That's my alma mater. Um, That's obviously right. Cheering for the Ohio State Buckeyes. Always wrong. Well done. Always wrong. Listening to worship music on the way to work. Depends on the band, but right. Um, (laughs) Listening to Kanye West on the way to work. Also right. Um, just so, I mean, we laugh about this, but the reality is, is that oftentimes we live our lives that way. Like maybe not about those things, but we live our lives asking these questions or thinking like, this is the right way to live. This is the wrong way to live. And we push those things on other people. About 10 years ago, a book was written called Unchristian, What a New Generation Really Thinks About Christianity and Why It Matters. And in this book, the authors surveyed teens and young adults, um, from both inside the church and outside the church to find out what did they think about Christians. And when they asked the question, um, could Christians be described as judgmental? 87% of people outside of the church said, absolutely yes. Not only that, but 52% of people in the church said yes. That means half of the people in this room right now would say that Christians are judgmental. And if that doesn't open your eyes to a problem, like, I don't know what's wrong. Like, there is something wrong with that. But where did these thoughts come from? Well, it doesn't take long to look through the comment section of really any news story on the internet to quickly find Christians blaming some horrible disaster on God or judgment or getting in a fight with somebody else. Or if you take a look at the signs that Christians hold up at, let's say, pride parades, or Christians hold up at even football games, like with the big giant letters, hell spelled out. When I was in college, there was occasionally this guy who would come to Library Mall, which was this place on the center of campus where about a thousand people would walk, or thousands of people would walk by every day. And what he would do is he would stand there in Library Mall with a megaphone and yell at people as they walked by to tell them exactly why they're going to hell simply by what he saw in them as they walked by. I mean, yay, let's follow Jesus. Am I right? That sounds awesome. But you know, it isn't just from what we see out there from those people. I mean, have you ever seen someone get angry at somebody else and just thought all of a sudden, man, thank God I don't have an anger problem like them? Or have you walked into church and seen somebody who is rude to one of your friends and thought, what is that person doing here? And, or have you had a conversation with somebody from a different faith, and as they're talking to you about their own faith, all of a sudden you shut them down because you're like, they're wrong anyway. I don't need to hear anything about what they're saying. As I was preparing this talk, um, I kind of struggled to get it going. Uh, and as I was thinking about it, I realized that the reason why this was so hard for me is because this is something that I struggle with all the time. 
See, I'm a very black and white person. And when it comes to my faith, oftentimes it can be expressed in a very legalistic way. Um, I think about like a Christian does this or a Christian doesn't do that. And so when I see people doing something that I don't think Christians could do, my immediate thought is let me put them in this box. Let me think about them a different way. Creating this distance between me and them as I sort of sit on this spiritual high horse looking down on them and being like, what are you doing? Why aren't you acting like a good Christian? And I know sitting here right now, there might be some of you here who have been a recipient of this. Maybe not from me, but from other Christians. You might be reluctantly sitting here wondering, why did I come to sanctuary tonight? Because every single time I've been around a Christian, I've always left feeling more judged or more condemned than loved. Or maybe you've done something that you're ashamed of and you're afraid, you're sitting there thinking, what if somebody finds out about what I've done? What are they going to think of me? How are they going to look at me? And I'll tell you, if that's you, I am so, so sorry that that has been your experience with Christians. And I am so glad that you are here tonight because the things that we're talking about tonight, we need you to be part of it to help us move forward, to grow and to be the community that I believe that Jesus calls us to be. And so tonight, as we seek to learn and understand both where these feelings or these desires come from and how to move forward, I want us to take a look at a story from the life of Jesus that we find in Matthew chapter 9. It's going to be up on your screen, but if you have your Bible, you're welcome to open to it. Matthew 9, we're going to start in chapter, or verse 9. And it simply says this. It says, As Jesus continued from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at a kiosk for collecting taxes. He said to him, Follow me. And Matthew got up and followed him. As Jesus sat down to eat in Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners joined Jesus and his disciples at the table. Now, I want to take a few moments right now just to paint this picture for you and to explain a little bit about what was going on. So we find out Jesus asked this guy, Matthew, to follow him. Matthew, as we're told, is a tax collector. And if you know anything about tax collectors, tax collectors were basically hated all throughout Israel. Because a guy like Matthew, he was an Israelite who decided to give his life to work for Rome and to collect taxes from other Israelites. From the Israelites' point of view, Matthew was pretty much a traitor who was working for their oppressors. So he would collect money from people as they were doing their job, and then he would also take a little additional money for himself. And so that didn't really help him make a lot of friends. And a guy like Matthew, there's a good chance that he was also posted up near the water. And so the people that he would get taxes from most often would most likely be fishermen. So I think it's safe to say that fishermen probably weren't Matthew's number one fans. And now with all of this in mind, Jesus walks up to Matthew and he says, follow me. Matthew, I want you to become one of my disciples. But who were the disciples? If we go to Matthew chapter 10, we read this list of people. He says, we have Simon, who was called Peter, Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother. Now, who were those four people? They were fishermen. Who did fishermen probably not like very much? The tax collectors. Hmm. All right. 
So we continue with that list. We have Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, and then Simon, the zealot. Now let's pause here for one more second. Simon, the zealot. The author makes a point of letting us know that Simon was a zealot. Who were the zealots? Well, I am so glad that you asked. The zealots were these group of Israelites who lived in a smaller, uh, more secluded group. They were people whose main goal in life was to overthrow the Roman government. The Roman government was their enemy. And so they attacked Roman government using guerrilla warfare tactics, thinking like, we can overthrow these people. Rome was the ultimate enemy. Simon was a zealot. Who was Simon's enemy? Rome. Matthew was a tax collector. Who did Matthew work for? Rome. If you were watching who Jesus was forming his group at this time, you can't help but wonder, Jesus, what on earth are you doing? Like, are you just asking for trouble? And then the last person in the list is Judas, who we all know ends up betraying Jesus. Like, if you're trying to find the best group of people to be your followers, these guys wouldn't be who it is. It would be like taking a Republican and a Democrat and making them in charge of making every political decision together. Or taking a Cal grad and a Stanford grad and letting them decide what is the best school in the Bay Area. Like, it's not a good idea. You're never going to get anywhere with that. You're just asking for trouble. But I can't help but think that as Jesus is calling somebody like Matthew, he's laughing to himself, thinking, you guys have no idea. Because Jesus doesn't do anything by accident. We'll see a little bit more about what's going on in just a bit. And so when we get back into the passage, we find out that Matthew has invited all of these people over to dinner. And so sitting at this table in Matthew's house, we have the disciples, we have Jesus, Matthew. The passage also lets us know these people are here. It says, many tax collectors and sinners, just in case you weren't sure who these people were, they joined them at the table as well. But that's not it. As the passage keeps going, we find out when the Pharisees saw this, hold up, the Pharisees are there too? So who were the Pharisees? This is just like a history lesson for all y'all. The Pharisees, you've probably heard this in church before, they were the religious elite. Like they were the most awesome Jewish people that you could ever meet. The Pharisees, in a sense, they were the people who were the keepers of who's right and who's wrong. They gave their lives to strict adherence to the law in many ways, judging those people who don't. I mean, if you ever want to know who's in or who's out, all you have to do is ask a Pharisee and they're going to let you know. So to recap, here at this table in Matthew's house, we have Jesus, we have tax collectors, we have fishermen who are most likely cheated on by tax collectors, we have a person who wants to overthrow the Roman government, we have people who work for Rome, and then we have um, the religious elite who live their lives telling people about how they should live their lives. Just picture that for one moment. I mean, the producers of The Bachelor couldn't make better drama than this. Not that I would ever watch that show. Um, 
But as we continue, like, think about that as we continue reading this passage about what is going on here. He said, the Pharisee said to the disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Why does your teacher associate himself with these people who shouldn't belong here? You see, in those days, table fellowship was so much more than about eating a dinner together. Table fellowship was, in a sense, a way of defining who belongs where. And in Jewish cultures, especially for the Pharisees, table fellowship was all about group identity. Because you had to to do certain rituals or practices were required in order to have a space at the table. Like the people sitting there would have had to do things in order to be clean. Because if you had a seat at the table, it meant that you were part of the religious elite. It meant that you were clean. It meant that you were part of the right crowd. And growing up, did you ever have with your friends or with your siblings, like maybe a secret knock or a secret password? And that you would go up to a closed door and like you would do it like, like that's the standard one. Um, But, you know, you'd do that. And so if you knew the password, you were allowed in. But if you didn't know it, like it would stay locked until your mom came in and said, you have to let bread in. Um, That's the way it goes. Um, This is a similar thing that's going on here. If you are part of the in crowd, if you know the right rituals, if you do the right things, you are allowed at the table. But if you don't know that, if you aren't part of that, you don't belong. And so the Pharisees, looking at what is happening, they are absolutely appalled, thinking, Jesus, you know better than this. What are you doing? These people, they don't belong here. They're not the right crowd. And I love that the Pharisees, they don't even sugarcoat it. They straight up say, these people are sinners and they're at the table with you. Are you kidding me? See, the Pharisees, they were the protectors of who was right and who was wrong. The Pharisees were all about building up walls around the faith to protect it from influence from outside sources. They had to keep the faith pure. If you wanted to be close to God, you had to follow these certain things. You needed to reach this level of holiness. You needed to do this or do that in order to belong. You need to avoid this or turn away from that if you want to have a space at this table. And in the tax collectors, they are people who they work with unclean people. The tax collectors were people who worked on the Sabbath. They broke the law. They were by nature unclean. They shouldn't have been allowed here. I mean, does this sound familiar? You need to change this part of your life if you want to be part of church. You need to clean up your language if you're going to belong here. You need to act a certain way if you want to be part of our group. You see, whether we intend to or not, oftentimes us in the church, we end up sounding an awful lot like the Pharisees. Instead of inviting people to the table, we set up walls, we shut doors, waiting for someone to know the secret knock or the secret password in order to be let in. Because we can't just let anybody in. What would happen if that person was in here and somebody else saw it? What would they think? I mean, that guy, that guy belongs at a bar, not in the pews. I mean, have you heard that person's political beliefs? We can't be seen with them. 
See, we put up these walls telling people, you belong here, but you don't. You're right, but you're wrong. But how does Jesus respond? Sitting at the table, surrounded by this group of people, from the outside looking in, they're like, what's going on? Jesus says this. He says, healthy people don't need a doctor, but sick people do. Go and learn what this means. I want mercy and not sacrifice. I didn't come to call the righteous people, but the sinners. Jesus quotes Hosea 6.6, which says, I desire faithful love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God instead of entirely burned offerings. With this, Jesus is quoting a passage that they would have known well. And with this, he's attacking their very way of living. Their pride, their joy, their pride and joy, their identity was found in their ability to keep the law and their ability to say who was right and who was wrong. I mean, they were the right people. They were the keepers of the law. They were the people who made the sacrifices. But Jesus says, I want mercy and not sacrifice. I don't want your rituals. What I want is simply your heart. You see, while the Pharisees were so focused on protecting who was in and who was out, making sure everyone followed the right things, pursuing perfection, Jesus tore down those walls. Jesus took the first step towards the people that the Pharisees would have looked to and said, you don't belong here. And he walked right on up to them and said, follow me. Give me your heart. It's not about doing this or doing that. It's not about knowing the secret password or the secret knock in order to get in. It's about giving me your heart and letting me begin to work in you. Jesus is saying, I don't care about your perfection. What I care about is your transformation. And it's here that we get to the heart of what is right or the heart of what's wrong with right and wrong. You see, so often we try to tell people, we try to live our lives telling one another that they need to live a certain way, judging one another in order to try to justify ourselves before God, doing what we think needs to be done in order to win God's approval or to make sure everybody sees us and sees that we are the good Christians. Or maybe we think that we need to do this in order to protect God's image for some reason. But you see, to us, Jesus is saying this. I don't want your sacrifice. What I want is your heart. Will you give me your heart? Because you see, the reality is, is that no matter how hard we try, no matter how many good things we do, no matter how many things we can check off of our religious to-do list, every single one of us is still that sinner at the table. Every single one of us is a broken person in need of God's grace. But every single one of us is a broken person who Jesus steps to and says, follow me, I love you more than you could ever imagine. And you have a place at my table. You see, when Jesus invited the zealots and the tax collectors, the sinners and the religious elite to follow him, he was showing all of us 
a little glimpse of what the kingdom of God is like. Because the kingdom of God is a place where every single person has a place at the table. It's not about what we've done to earn our spot at the table, but instead it's about who Jesus is and what Jesus did for us at the cross. See, to you, to me, to our community, Jesus says to us, wherever you are right now, I want you to follow me. I want you to give me your heart. I want you to join me at the table. So what does this mean for our lives? How do we actually live this out in our lives? I think first, we need to both individually and corporately, we need to give our hearts to Jesus. I was talking with a friend the other day, and we were talking about how giving our hearts to Jesus is honestly one of the, the most challenging things that we can possibly do. Because in order to do that, we need to realize and admit how broken and messed up we truly are. It requires that we admit how badly we need Jesus and that we are no different than any other person that he invites to the table. And then it also means giving up control of the things that I I love in my life, saying, Jesus, I trust you with my life, saying, Jesus, everything that I am, everything that I have is yours. Jesus, I'm going to give up control of my life, and I'm even going to give up control of my spiritual well-being, whatever it is, and trust that you are going to work in my life. See, for Matthew, following Jesus meant giving up his livelihood. For somebody like Simon, it meant giving up his pursuit of this revolution. For you, it could mean letting go of your pride or a need to always be right. Or maybe it means giving up a pursuit to find validation in your work or what you do or how many religious things you do. And earlier I had mentioned that I am very much a rule follower. I'm very much a black and white person. And when it came to my faith, I can oftentimes be, and I have been very legalistic. When I was growing up, I I can remember clearly any time I messed up, beating myself up over it, thinking, Brett, how could you do this? A Christian doesn't do this. Why are you doing this? Many, many nights in a row, I remember laying in my bed, recommitting my heart to Jesus, thinking, man, I really need God's grace today. I really need God's forgiveness today because I am just the worst of the worst and the worst and never thought that I was gonna be good enough for God. Never thought that he would actually love me because I knew who I was deep down. I lived with this weight on my shoulders feeling like I was never going to earn his love. But then as I began to learn more about who Jesus was and learn about his grace for me, I started to realize that while God wasn't happy with a lot of the things I did, he also didn't hold it over me. Instead, he was saying to me daily, Brett, let me help you back up. Brett, let me take your heart and begin the transformation process in you. Brett, let me help you become more like me. I tell you, God's still having to remind me of this almost every day. And in the process, I am learning to enjoy life with God and experience a life of grace and walking in the freedom and not feeling like I always have to be this perfect person if I'm going to be a good Christian. 
see, in order for us to move beyond seeing others or even ourselves through the lens of right and wrong, the first thing we have to do is realize who we truly are to give over our hearts to Jesus. Now, the second thing that we can do is I think for us, we need to become a community of grace. We need to be a community where every single person whether they're conservative or liberal, atheist or Christian, rich or poor, every single person knows that they have a spot in this room. They have a spot at Jesus's table. Again, this is hard to do because it might mean that we let go of our desires to control who is in or who is out, who is right and who is wrong, and to trust that God will begin to do the work in their lives. I mean, some of you might be sitting here and you're thinking, Brett, this just sounds like soft Christianity. Brett, you're just letting people off the hook. You're trying to communicate a gospel that's easy to swallow so that people can just sit there, be themselves, and live life as they always lived it. If you read the Bible, we see that there's a right and wrong. We see Jesus tell, talk about the type of life we should live or not live. And to you, I would say, you're right. Jesus does talk a lot about a different type of life that he wants us to live. Jesus, I believe Jesus does tell us that there is a right and the wrong in a lot of different places. But when you look at Jesus's life, every time he talks about those things, it starts within the midst of a relationship. It starts when Jesus steps into their lives and lets them know that you are loved that I wanna have a life with you. And then he always gives them the call, leave your life and follow me. Follow me and then I will start to do this work in your life. I mean, do you think Matthew knew what the Pharisees thought about him? Absolutely. But who changed Matthew's life? The one who saw him for who he was and gave him that invitation to follow me. And when Matthew did that, he experienced a life of grace and a life of love that transformed his entire life. You see, with Jesus, it starts with an invitation, and then he begins the transformation. Jesus never sugarcoated things. He never told people to keep living life as they are. He told them to leave their lives behind. He said some hard things to people, yet sinful, broken people flocked to him from all over because when they encountered him, they encountered something that was different. They experienced his grace and his love. In a world where the church is often known as the keepers of who's right and who's wrong, the only way that we are going to change that perception is if we commit to being a community that gives out the grace that we have received from Jesus, by being a community that realizes that every single one of us is on the same level at the foot of the cross. Every single one of us is a sinner in need of God's grace and in need of a savior. So let me ask you, who can you invite to the table this week? Is there somebody in your life who maybe you've pushed away for the sake of being right or being wrong? How could you take a step towards them this week? See, the church, us included, we've gotten this wrong so many times throughout history. 
we've caused a lot of problems in the past, and we can't fix that. But we can change things moving forward. And we can do that when we commit to being a community of grace, a community that makes space for every single person at the table with Jesus. Will you guys pray with me? God, we love you. Um, God, as I think about this stuff, I just can't help but think about how much I need you. Um, think about all the ways in my life that I have messed up and um, I've tried to find my worth, my value, my justification and my deeds. Um, and God, I thank you that you are a God who says, Brett, I want your heart. Brett, I want you to live with me and then I will do the rest. God, I pray for anybody in here who has been burned by the church, maybe burned by some of us in here. God, I pray that they know your grace and your love today. God, help us become a community of grace. Help us be a community that shows your love and lives out your love every single day. God, we love you. In your name, amen.